That's brutal, isn't it? I mean, to hear someone so flatly, so, so blankly, so plainly admitting to doing so many awful things, his frankness was, was unnerving. Because we're just not used to hearing people talk like that. I mean, sure, we hear people admit wrong, but, but not, not like that. Which in my mind just reaffirms the fact that we all need this message because we are very uncomfortable with ownership. See, no one owns anything anymore. There's always someone else to blame. Whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans or the previous generation or the one that's coming after us the families that we grew up in, the person that we're married to, the bosses that we're forced to work for, society at large, even our diagnosis. We are people who play the blame game really well, but we're not near so good at ownership. And and I think that's what makes Emmanuel's story that we just saw so jarring See, see, if that were our own story, even, even if we had done all those things, we would tell it very differently, wouldn't we? We'd say, wait a minute, let me, let me first tell you about how my dad left when I was a kid, and, and let me tell you about what was going on in our society at the time, and, and then let me tell you about this charismatic warlord who came along and, and made me feel a sense of belonging and made me feel loved and important for the first time in my life, and, and so I didn't really know what I was doing, and even though I did a lot of bad things, it's not really my fault. See, when it comes to life, uh, most of us live like renters, not owners. Now, I don't know about you, but but I've done both. I've rented and I've owned, and I know that home ownership is supposed to be the American dream. But but for me, as far as it goes for me, I think, yeah, they've got a name for those kinds of dreams. They're called nightmares. Right? I mean, ownership is not easy. It's an incredible amount of work. When you're a renter, it's pretty easy. If something goes wrong, all you have to do is pick up the phone and call someone and tell them that they've got a problem. But it's not your problem, is it? But when you're an owner, it's always your problem. The clogged drains, the leaky roof, the out-of-control landscaping, it is all your problem. you got squirrels in the attic doesn't matter if you trim back your trees and did everything you're supposed to do. It's still your problem. You've got to deal with it. There's no one else to turn to. See, most of us live like renters, not owners. Because we don't want to take responsibility. It's exhausting to be an owner. It is, it is a ton of work. It never seems to end. And that's why blaming is, is so much easier for us, and that's, that's why we just do it so much better. I, I love uh, good old Yogi Berra. He has this great, great quote about blame and ownership. He said, I never blame myself when I'm not hitting. I just blame the bat. And if it keeps up, I change bats. After all, if I know it isn't my fault that I'm not hitting, how can I get mad at myself? It's true ownership right there, or not. Uh, you know, just uh, the other day I saw this in a fortune cookie. To err is to human. To blame it on somebody else shows management potential. (laughs) I'm not sure about this Chinese restaurant. I don't think I'm going back there ever again. 
Here's the bottom line. Even though ownership is a pain and it is difficult, it is a necessary stop on the path to freedom. And see, until we begin to own our past, our present, and our future, we will never, ever find freedom. No matter what else we do, until we own our lives, we'll never get to freedom. And today I want to demonstrate this for you out of the life of a guy who lived his whole life blaming others. And his name is not Dion, although maybe it could be. Um, His name is actually Jacob. And Jacob's story starts long before he was ever born. It actually starts while he was still in his mother's womb. Because Jacob was one of two boys. He was, he was a pair of, uh, or one of a pair of twins. Two boys in his mother's womb. Now, now twin boys, for some of you, may seem like a handful. Uh, to his parents, it was a great blessing. But for these two boys, it would be a challenge. Because they were being born into a very wealthy family. And in the times that they were being born in... Uh, in those times, the, the firstborn would be the heir. He, he would get the family fortune and the family name and carry on the family lineage. And the secondborn would be out of luck. And it seems that, that Jacob and his brother understood this instinctively because as they were in their mother's womb, they, they tussled and turned and struggled and fought with each other to the point that their mother became alarmed at all of the movement in there. And then when it came time for them to be born, the struggle was far from over because one of the babies was born first and his parents looked at him and they named him Esau. But coming right behind Esau, with his hand on Esau's heel, not so easily willing to let him escape the womb first, was his second baby, a baby that they named Jacob. Jacob which literally means he grasps at the heel. Jacob, the trickster or deceiver, as his name means idiomatically, Jacob. Now, now there are some of you who, uh, who could easily shrug off a bad beginning like this. There, there are some of you who, who are like, you know, you're the people who say, if life gives me lemons, I'm just going to make, yeah, all that rot. Some of you believe that stuff. And uh, you're, you're just optimistic to your core, and, and you're just not going to let that get you down. But Jacob was not one of these guys. Uh, it seems that this, 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 this bad start he got, being cheated out of being firstborn, getting a bad name from his parents, that, that stuff just kind of festered in him, and he, and he got a big chip on his shoulder, and he began living life trying to get even. So as time went on, he and his brother grew up, and, uh, and one day Jacob, he tricks his brother. He, uh, he, his brother is out hunting, and he comes in, and he's starving, and Jacob has just made some stew. And, and Jacob makes his brother agree to, to a crazy deal. He makes him agree to selling him his birthright, his rights as the firstborn son, for a bowl of stew. Now, now Esau probably thought Jacob wasn't being serious. You know how brothers can be. But Jacob was very serious, and he's very shrewd. And then some time went on, and, uh, and their father was, was aging, and he was blind, and he was, he was uh, believed to be near death. And, and so he wanted to speak the blessing that a father would give to his firstborn son over Esau. But before Esau could come in, Jacob went into his father's room, 
pretending to be Esau, dressed like him, smelled like him, did everything he could to become like Esau, and he lied about who he was to steal the blessing of the firstborn away from his brother Esau. And after that, of course, Esau was not happy when he found out and he wanted to kill him, and so Jacob had to flee, and he went out east to a distant uh, place to where some of his relatives lived, and there Jacob met a woman that he instantly fell in love with, a woman who would later become his wife. But this woman, she had a father who was cut from the same cloth as Jacob. They were actually distant relatives because this guy was a deceiver just like Jacob. And I won't tell you the whole story, but he made Jacob work for 14 years before he could have the hand of his wife. And along the way, the father-in-law snuck in one of his other daughters as another wife, so Jacob ended up with two wives. But Jacob, he was not going to be outdone. Because even though his father-in-law was a deceiver and a trickster, uh, Jacob found, way, uh, found a way to get even with him, and, and he launched this elaborate scheme where, in essence, he plundered his father's fortune, his father-in-law, father-in-law's fortune, I should say. His father-in-law's fortune was in sheep and livestock. He was a shepherd. And Jacob found a way to, uh, to basically carry off the majority of his father-in-law's livestock with him, and he got out of town. So up to this point, even though he had a bad start, you know, it's like score... Jacob 100, everyone else zero. And you see, Jacob doesn't care. He's not bothered by it because because up to this point, life has cheated him and he's just getting back what's rightfully his. And so he leaves his father-in-law with all of his herds and all of his wealth and and, and he goes with his family and they begin traveling back west. but, 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 But Jacob finds himself in a difficult place because back west is his brother Esau the one who wants to kill him. And, and he can't go back east now because he's just cheated his father-in-law who also has threatened if he crosses a certain boundary line that he, he will kill him. And so Jacob is literally caught in the middle. With all of these bad decisions and these burned bridges finally beginning to catch up with him, he's stuck in no man's land. And you know exactly what this feels like. On some level, don't you? When some of your choices in life begin to catch up on you and and things begin to press in on you and those burn bridges leave you with nowhere to go, nowhere to run, and you're stuck. And now usually when that happens to us, what happens is we we take that blame machine that we keep close by to, to kind of get through life and we crank it up all the way on high, you know, on level 10, and we start blaming and denying and doing everything we can to work our way out of the jam that we're in. Which is what you would expect Jacob to do given his past. But today we're going to see that that Jacob did something different. And so um, right now we're going to dive into the middle of the story. I've given you some context. Genesis chapter 32, starting at verse 22. You can go there in your uh, Bible in the rack ahead of you. You can take out your smartphone, go to uversion.com, or go to the Bible app from uversion, or you can look along right up here at Genesis 32. Now before I get into this, I just want you to know this is a very, very old story, and for some of us, it may almost feel like a fable. But I assure you, I it's not a fable. I mean, Jesus himself attested to these words being true, and I believe these words are true, but, but let me say this to you. If you're not a Christian, or if you kind of struggle with some of this stuff that's really old in the Bible, this is the first book of the Bible, and it's got some old stuff, um, I hope that you can come to believe that these words are true. But even if you can't, there is something powerful, there is a powerful truth contained in these words that, uh, that I think can change your life if you let it. 
So, so let's look at what Jacob does. Genesis 32, his life is pressing in. It says, that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He's heading back into his family's uh, land, back into the promised land. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, now let me just tell you about a couple things here. The first note is, is this, that Jacob was left alone. Last week we talked about this, if you were here. If not, go back and uh, watch that message or, or listen to that message. We talked about the power of solitude. We talked about the gift of, of slowness that God gives us and how, how a getting quiet is often the way that we will begin to find freedom in our lives from the things that enslave us. See, so often in life we stay busy. We, we stay frenzied in order to, to shut out the things that are broken inside of us or the relationships that are broken in our lives. So we deliberately try to keep ourselves busy so we drown out, drown out our pain or we ignore the things that we don't want to face in our lives. And so last week we said, you know, when you're alone, when you get alone with God, when you slow down, that's when God can come into your life and begin to do things that will ultimately set you free. Interesting that this, this, what we're about to see happens while Jacob is alone. But now Jacob is not doing this intentionally. He's not intentionally going to seek time with God. The truth probably is that he's crossing back over into, into his family's territory where his brother is waiting for him. His brother, who, when he last saw him, was, was going to kill him. And so Jacob sends over his wives because, you know, who's going to do something to a woman? And he sends over his kids because who's going to hurt his kids? And he sends over his possessions. And Jacob just can't bring himself to cross back over and face his brother. So he finds himself alone, but it's because he's hiding. And yet still, this is powerful that this happens alone. The second thing I want you to note is that all of a sudden, there's this wandering, wrestling man who appears, you know, who just travels the countryside wrestling with people. And, uh, I mean, what is going on here? All of a sudden, it just goes, he was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. It's just ordinary stuff, right? I mean, you wrestle with strangers all the time on your last car trip. I, no, what's going on here is, is, as you can see on the screen, it's probably an angel that was wrestling with Jacob. We'll see this in a minute. Um, or, or maybe not even an angel. Maybe, maybe this was God himself. Some people believe, and I'm a fan of this view, that this could have even been Jesus, the Christ, pre-incarnate. Uh, which I find fascinating. E- either way, this is more than just a man. So, so uh, Jacob's left there alone, and God comes into that loneliness, and he begins wrestling with Jacob. Watch what happens next. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, this is interesting, the man, the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This tells you something about Jacob. I mean, this guy's wrestling with an angel or with God himself, and he is not easily beaten because there's a blessing at stake. There, there is something to be gained from this encounter. And I told you, Jacob is tenacious. If there's something to be had, he's going to get it for himself. Now, to be sure, if, if, this is, uh, if this is God, God is humoring him. He's, he's letting him wear himself out. And yet Jacob is this guy who will stop at nothing to get a blessing in his life. We continue. The man asked him, what is your name? <laughs> now, this is interesting. 
Because the last time that Jacob was asked what his name was, the last time that happened when when a blessing was at stake was when, as I told you, Jacob went in to the bedside of of his blind and dying father and pretended to be his brother Esau. See, the last time Jacob was asked this question, when a blessing was at stake, he lied about it so that he could get the blessing at any cost, because that's who Jacob is, and that's what Jacob does. But this time, Jacob is going to answer differently. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Now, this is so much more than Jacob just being honest. What, What Jacob is, in essence, doing is he is finally, for the first time in his life, as far as I can tell, willing to own who he has become. He's not just saying, hey, my name is Jacob, good to meet you. What he's saying is, I'm Jacob. I'm the guy who grasps at the heel. I am a trickster. I am a deceiver. I am the guy who will trip other people up to get ahead. That's who I am. That's who I've become. I am Jacob. Now, now this may not seem like much to you, but but if you've ever done this, if you've ever had to own up to either what you've done or or who you are or what you've become, you know this is this is this is brutal. This is this is terrifying. This is so scary. Because what happens if I actually admit to who I am, to what I've done? And what if I myself can't deal with the weight? of that? What, what, if, what if the reality of who I am or what I've let myself become, what, what if that crushes me? What if the people in my life whom I admire most turn their back on me? What if, what if I make myself unlovable to them? What if I have to live the rest of my life, my existence, alone? See, this is what we fear doing more than anything. Owning up to the things that we've done in our past to the people that we are today, to the flaws that we have in our being. This is what we hardly ever want to do. And yet, if we would do it, if we would get more comfortable with it, it could change everything for us. Jacob does this for the first time, and I want you to see what happens. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. So get this, the man said, God said, the angel said, your name will no longer be the guy who grasps at the heel, who trips other people up to get ahead. You will no longer be the trickster or the deceiver, but now you will be Israel, which which we think roughly translated means he struggles with God. So, So get this, the man said, you will no longer be the deceiver, you will now be the guy who struggles with God. You will no longer trip other people up to steal your way, to cheat your way to the front of the line, but you are now a guy who's going to contend and struggle with God because, it says, you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. See what happens when Jacob finally owns up? When he finally acknowledges who he has become, all the deception, all of the lying, all of the cheating, no blame shifting, no excuses, no, well, hey, have you met my older brother? He's a jerk. Or, or did you know what my parents named me and, and what it's like to live under that name? None of that, none of that at all. When he finally owns up 
God says to him, you know what? You will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. See, that's what happens when you step up and you own your life. Rather than being a blamer or a denier or a deceiver, whether we're talking about things that you've done or or who you are and what you've let yourself become, ownership is what puts you on the path to freedom. And yet, as I've said, we're, we're so afraid to do this. And in our society, there's almost kind of this rule that you never own up. You get sued if you do. I mean, you, you just never own up to, to the truth. You, you always spin it. You always twist it a little bit. In our society, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, spreading the blame around or, or helping yourself be understood. And I'll just tell you that, that if you want justice, if that's your greatest desire in life, then go ahead and blame people because I'm sure there's someone you can blame for who you are or the things that you've done in your life. There's plenty of blame to go around. And if justice is what you're after, go ahead and blame other people for, for the ways that they've harmed you or the things that have happened to you that are unfair. And if in life, if you want to save face, if you want to maintain your, your facade as a presentable, respectable person, then, then go ahead and deny things because I'm sure there's, there's credible room for you to deny some of your responsibility, your culpability. Go, go ahead. But if you want freedom, there is no other way to freedom than ownership. I love what Brene Brown says. She's a favorite of mine right now. Um, read her books. I think they're great. She says, if you own this story, you know, if you, if you own this story that you're living in, if you're, if you're not putting it off on someone else, but if you own this story, then you get to write the ending. That's powerful, isn't it? And see, so often in life, we live letting other people own our story for us. Whether it is a traumatic childhood or some bad thing that happened to us or, or, or some unfortunate circumstances or bad luck, we let those things own our story and we give them all the power and all the credit and all the blame. We, we hand it over to them. And what we're in essence doing is we're giving away the power that we might have to write the ending of our story. If you own the story, you get to write the ending. That's powerful. And if you're in Christ... If you belong to him, as you sang in that song, if, uh, if, if you can say, I am yours and you are mine, to Jesus, then not only is it true that if you own this story, you get to write the ending, it's even better than that, because it's not about you fixing it or putting it together yourself. The truth is, if you're in Christ, if you own this story, if you own your story, then you get to invite God himself in to help you write a new ending to that story. See, ownership is powerful, but it's difficult. Because that means first I've got to face the the things that I've done, the, the, the mistakes that I've made, and I've got to be willing to say, yep, that's me. It's my fault. I did that. I made a bad decision. I do that all the time in those circumstances. I'm a flawed person. This is how I'm broken. It's hard to do. It takes vulnerability, and I hate being vulnerable. I don't know about you. It may mean that that in order to own this stuff, you have to confess to someone, to God, maybe to another person. It may mean that you have to pursue reconciliation with someone. 
It may mean that you have to go and make amends for something that you have done. It may mean you have to go seek, seek counseling to figure out what's going on in you and, and how to change your thinking. That's hard stuff. No wonder we'd rather be own, owners, or I'm sorry, blamers or renters rather than owners. Right? And then you add to it all, all the external stuff the stuff that's not directly our fault, the stuff that we have not caused for ourselves, the stuff that I've not chosen, the stuff that, that really isn't my stuff, and yet it's still a part of my life. Talking about the other things that people have put on you and, and the circumstances that are out of your control that you've had to live through. Now, I'm not saying that, that when you own those things that somehow you become an enabler or you say that you know, people aren't responsible for their actions and you take ownership of their actions. No, no, no. But, but here's what I'm saying. That ultimately, it's your life. You hear me? It's your life. And so today, you've got to ask yourself the question. I don't care what someone has done to you or or, or what has happened to you or or the deck of cards that life has dealt to you. It doesn't matter. It's ultimately your life. So are you going to let some unhappy childhood write the rest of your story? Some traumatic memory? Are you going to allow some unfortunate oversight to have control and power over the rest of your life. It may have influenced your life in the past, but are you going to give it all the power for the rest of your story? See, if you own this story, you can write the ending. And if you are in Christ, if you own the story, not only do you get to write the ending, but you get to invite an all-seeing, all-knowing God who's really great at writing great stories, you get to invite him in. This message is pretty simple, but it's hard to do. Bottom line, you can't blame your way to freedom. You can't deny your way to freedom. You can't cheat or steal your way to freedom. You can't. And when Jacob finally realized that, or or when he finally had that moment of ownership, that is when his life began to change. He's in this impossible situation, and you can read the rest of this sometime this week. Just go to Genesis 32 and read the rest. But, But Jacob's life really does begin to change. In that moment when he says before God, I am Jacob, this is who I am, God begins to make him into a new man. He doesn't become a perfect man, but but his story really does begin to change. He reconciles with his brother and his family, and he becomes the one through whom God continues his lineage leading all the way up to Christ. See, after owning who God, rather, after owning who he had let himself become, God allowed him to become someone else. The question today is, what about you? What about you? See, I think so many of us believe that our story is too tragic. It's too flawed. That we are too broken. That that we are, are too dysfunctional. That too much baggage has come into our lives and we're carrying it around. That there's just too much working against us in order to have a different story. And I think it's part of the reason that we're terrified to own it because we just feel stuck, like there's nothing else for us to do. If that's you today, let me just remind you of something. Let me remind you of the fact that God turned the tragedy of a cross on Friday into the redemption of the world by Sunday. You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, we're talking about like 36 hours here is all it took for God to turn that story around. For humanity crucifying Jesus, the Son of God, which was the most dark and deceitful and, and awful and tragic thing humanity had ever done, it only took God 36 hours to turn that around, turn that around into the salvation of the world. So do you really think... Do you really think that, that your story is too messy or that your life is too broken or that you're too dysfunctional or your family was too messed up and that the trauma that you've inflicted is too great for God to begin to write you a different story? Now, it may take longer than 36 hours. I think in most of our cases it will. But do you think that God doesn't have the power or the ability or the will or the goodness if you are willing to just own up and say, God, that is me. This is what I struggle with. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Do you really think that God, if you come to him like that, do you think he'll deny you? The Bible says a contrite heart and a broken spirit, God, you will, not, you will not despise. And that's what we see with Jacob. But it can be true in your life, too. But it's not going to come through any other way except the raw, frank, blunt path of ownership. Let me pray for us right now. Father, I ask that you would, I guess, just give us courage. Father, whatever it is that stands in the way of us just owning our lives, the, the things that, uh, that make us want to blame and deny and hide and run and excuse and explain, whatever that is, God, whatever, whatever drives us to that, whether it's, whether it's fear or whether it's pride, whatever it may be, I pray that you'd overcome that in us so that we can have real freedom. Father, you've given us our lives and you've given us responsibility over our lives to steward them well and yet you've not left us alone. You, you promise to come and to help us live a life that is freer and fuller and more whole than, than the life that we're currently living, living today. But, but God, we know that in order for that to happen, like Jacob, we've got to have a moment with you where we just get real. And we own our lives for what they are. We own ourselves for who we are. And we invite you in to begin to make our story different. God, by your spirit, give us courage so that nothing will stand in the way of our freedom. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.